Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. It's good to be back in Elkdale. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to uh, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be in the first few verses of this great book. Uh, I had a college professor one time. We had a summer study on the book of Revelation, and his word was uh, one of the most difficult things of the book of Revelation. The thing that gives the book of Revelation the most trouble is its interpreters. Uh, so we want to try to see if we can interpret these opening verses of Revelation around the idea that help is on the way. Uh, my wife was uh, leaving Birmingham, uh, driving back to Montgomery a few, a few years ago, and uh, it was closer to dark. She doesn't like to drive in the dark, and uh, so she had to stop and get gas uh, just on the south side of Birmingham, and uh, as she got back in her car and started it, all of her instrument panel lights went dark. She had no ability to see how fast she was going. And when my wife is driving, that is a severe problem. <laughs> if she can't see the speedometer, then she just lets her foot stay in the carburetor, so it doesn't matter. Uh, so she's, uh, she calls me. I'm an hour and a half away, uh, as if I can do anything to fix the problem from an hour and a half away. But she's, her, her car has this little OnStar button. And, uh, and so she decides, uh, as, as we hang up the phone, and I, I've tried to reassure her, as far as I'm concerned, the car worked. It started, and she could put it in gear and drive it. So I said, why don't you try OnStar and see what they can do? So she did, and all of a sudden, there's this voice from heaven that says, hello, Miss Dubois, how are you doing? And so they start this nice conversation, and Connie proceeds to tell them that she's cranked her car and her instrument panel lights are not working and she wants to know if they can tell anything about what's going on. Well, unbeknowings to us, they have the ability to run this diagnostic from heaven uh, on her car. And so as she's actually driving down the interstate, the, the voice on the other end says, give me just a moment and I'll be right back. And so just a few seconds later, she came back and she said, I've run a diagnostic on your engine and everything is working properly. She said, it's possible that on your instrument panel, there's a little wiring connection that may be a problem, but it will not affect your car. It won't affect your safety or ability to get back home. Uh, just when you get a chance, drop it by a service center and they'll take care of it. Wouldn't it be nice in life if you had one of those OnStar buttons to push? I mean, when you, when you come up on trouble, do you have trouble? <laughs> you got trouble? I've had trouble all week. We've had three grandkids at our house, ranging from 13 to two months. Oh, I'm tired. I need a break. So maybe between the service, I, services, I can take a nap today and catch up a little bit on what's been going on. But when our little two-month-old starts crying at two in the morning, you ask her, what's your trouble? She can't tell you. It'd be nice if you had an OnStar button and find out what the trouble was. You know, the Bible says, according to Job chapter 14, verse 1, man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Now, if anyone knew about trouble, it would be Job, wouldn't it? Within about a 24-hour time frame, Job lost everything he had worked his whole life for. He lost his family, he lost his land, he lost his animals, he lost everything. And, and, and it was even to the point that his friends were coming along 
saying, Job, what have you done? You must have really messed up for this kind of trouble to happen. But in Job 14.1, he gives us that verse. And to give a little modern translation of that, life is short and full of trouble. So none of us escape trouble. None of us escape the difficulties of life. Now, maybe you think that when a person becomes a believer, that all of a sudden trouble disappears. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. The Bible tells us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So the storms come, and it affects both godly and ungodly, those who have faith and those who don't. So life is short and full of trouble. I find it interesting in John 14, 1, Jesus said to his disciples after telling them he was about to depart from them, reminded them, let not your heart be troubled. Now the disciples were grieving over the words that Jesus had given them about his imminent departure. They were grieving over that. And Jesus said to them, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their trouble, let not your heart be troubled. So it's possible, according to Jesus, for your world to be turned upside down, but for you to be at peace in your heart because of the resources God brings to your life. Now the churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation were in trouble. They were experiencing intense persecution at the end of the first century, around 96 A.D., uh, under the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor. Now, now, those who were Christians in the first century world believed that it could not get any worse than Nero. Nero was around 70 A.D. That was when the temple fell in Jerusalem. He would have also been in charge when the diaspora happened in Acts chapter 8, when the church was scattered because of persecution. Everyone thought that Nero was as bad as it could possibly be from a trouble standpoint, but Domitian proved them wrong because he was able to accomplish things in terms of persecution that Nero never dreamed about. So John has been, has been sent to the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. He's in prison at the writing of the book of Revelation and he's looking across the body of water onto the landmass of Asia Minor. And it's when the Spirit of God begins to move on him and he begins to write down the words that we now have as the book of Revelation. The people were in trouble. The Christians were under intense persecution. As a matter of fact, persecution was rampant in Asia Minor. Everywhere you turned, there were challenges to those who stood up for their faith. People who were believers and publicly confessed their belief in Christ were often put into prison or worse, killed. And that was the circumstance in Asia Minor into which John is writing this book. Defection was tempting. In Asia Minor, it was tempting for Christians to renounce their faith, arguing that it would be better to live and denounce your faith than to die as a result of your faith. And it was tempting for them to back away from their faith until all of this calmed down and then they could reassert themselves again as believers later on. It was tempting for them to defect from the faith altogether. Satan was charging in Asia Minor. He was, he was wrecking havoc on the churches 
of, of Asia Minor. These churches, some of them at one time were very strong, and now they've drifted away from Christ, and they find themselves in difficult spots, and, and, and Satan is seemingly having a field day with, without being checked at all. There's no control over him at all in Asia Minor. That's what they thought. The zealots were on the loose. The, the zealots out of Jerusalem and other places, those who, who thought they had the answer and Jesus obviously was not part of their answer, uh, were trying to get the church to conform to their ideology and theology. And as a result, the churches were under severe persecution in that late first century world. But it's into this seemingly helpless and hopeless situation that God wanted His children to know help is on the way. Now when you're in trouble as a believer, what kind of help does God give? What is it that God offers you that you can't find anywhere else? I don't care where you look. If you're in trouble, I don't care where you look, there is no better answer than the answer that Jesus himself gives us when we're facing times of trouble. Look in Revelation chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1, and we're going to read the first three verses, and then keep your Bible open there, because we'll come back to this a little bit later. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, now there would have been some who, who thought that meant the imminent return of Jesus. The church of the first century believed in the imminent return of Christ. When they, when they saw Jesus return to heaven after resurrection, uh, they believed that he would come back again as he had promised very quickly. And so they would, they would say sometimes in their writings, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Maybe you've said that about our current situation in America, that we'd be better off if Jesus would just come right now. For those of us who are believers, it'd be a great time, wouldn't it? You get translated from the mess we're in now into heaven itself. So what's the trade-off? What's the bad part about that situation? But, but that's... That, that's where it was. This, this really was not talking about the imminent return of Jesus. When he, when he talks about these things which shortly must take place, he's talking about the pressure, the trouble that the churches of Asia are experiencing as a result of the reign and rule of Emperor Domitian. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. There's power in the word of God. If you, if you let the word of God speak to your life, it will change your life. And that's what John is saying here. This is a word from God given to John by the Holy Spirit, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is going to write these words down, and they will be beneficial to the churches of Asia Minor, and more importantly, to the Christians of Asia Minor, as they consider their immediate future. So let's talk about, for just a few minutes, what, what, what is it that God offers? Uh, what are the resources that God brings to us when we find ourselves 
in trouble, the first one's going to surprise you a little bit. Look in verse 3. John said, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, uh, is, is a verse that starts with, section that starts with the Beatitudes. And the word that, that, that Jesus uses there is, starts every one of those Beatitudes is the word blessed. Spelled blessed, but we say blessed. That word is a Greek word that means happy. Uh, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law doth he meditate day and night. And he'll be planted like a tree, (laughs) planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, and its leaf also shall not wither, and everything it does will prosper. Blessed. It's the word that means happy. It's a word that means to be congratulated. And John, along with with Matthew and along with David, used that word to remind the Christians of Asia Minor that when they're facing trouble, one of the resources God brings to them is the ability to be happy in the midst of struggle. To be at peace in the midst of difficulty. You can do that. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. You've experienced it. You've been in trouble. There's something going on in your life that's turned your world upside down. And, and yet there's this inner peace that somehow you're, con, you're confirmed that, that God has everything under control. You don't have to worry. Didn't Jesus also say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't worry. Don't be anxious for anything. Trust God. Let Him be the one to provide the happiness for your life. Your happiness has nothing to do with your circumstances. Your happiness has nothing to do with how your day is going, whether it's good or bad. Your happiness has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. It has everything to do with what God is able to bring to the table in in providing a sense of peace in your life when trouble comes. But notice what John said. Happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So the the key to that happiness is to hear the Word of God and to take it to heart. So if you're in trouble, the best thing you can do is pick up the Word of God and begin reading the Word of God. And God will have a way of flooding your soul with this sense of peace that only He can bring to your life. John said to these folks, and the first thing he said to them was, happy is the person who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now there's a difference between reading and hearing. (laughs) Uh, 
Connie can tell me to do something right in the middle of a ball game, and I might hear her, but that doesn't necessarily mean at that very moment I'm going to do what she's asking me to do. That's hearing without action. (laughs) That gets me in trouble a lot, too, because her timetable often works different from mine. She wants it done right now, and I say, well, I'll get to it. I'll get around to it. That's another little button I wish I had was one of those round to its, you know, so I could pull it out and use it every once in a while, but I can't. Blessed are the ones who, who hear the Word of God and put it into practice. If you really want to be happy in the midst of trouble in your life, turn to the Word of God and let Him speak to your heart. He has a way of calming your soul. He has a way of speaking into your life that word of encouragement and hope that you desperately need when things have gotten tough in your life. So when you're in trouble, don't ignore God. Don't run from God. Don't don't pursue all the other options you have at your disposal first and then come back to Him as a last resort. The Bible says if you're in trouble, look to Him first You'll find happiness as a result when you begin reading the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, and taking to heart what is said, because the time is at hand. These people were facing intense persecution. John knew that for some of them, the end result of life for them would be death, persecution. And so for them, the time was near. There wasn't going to be much time before the Roman soldiers would come and there there wouldn't be much time before the zealots would come and take them off into into bondage and, and, and very possibly put an end to their life. So John is saying it is of extreme importance for you to understand the the ability of the Word of God to bring happiness to your life even in the midst of difficult circumstances. But there's also hope. Look what he says in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now he's not writing just to seven churches. These are seven churches that are representative of the other churches in Asia Minor and what would have been happening is John would have written letters to these churches with the understanding that these churches would have shared these letters with other churches. So what John was saying to those seven specific congregations could have application in many other churches, uh, not just those seven. I, I, I love preaching a series through those seven letters, the, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and, and, and to listen at what Jesus says as he looks inside the church, because he has the ability to do that, you know. He knows what's going on at Elkdale right now, and he knows who he can count on and whom he can't count on. So, so th- that's important for us to understand, that he knows what's happening in his churches. And he knows what's happening here. And he knows what's happening in your life. He knows your conflict. He knows your struggle right now. He knows the trouble that you're living under right now. And he wants to speak a word of hope and help if you'll let him. That's the, that's the word of this. But look at what he says in, in verse, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him, catch the, the, the sequence of this, who is and who was and who is to come 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God, uh, to his God and Father, uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So not only does happiness come to the believer when they're facing trouble and put their faith in God, but also that believer experiences hope. Now what's the source of that hope? He identifies two terms that are of extreme importance to us. One of them is grace and the other one is peace. So let's, let's take a moment to talk about this. Grace and peace. Grace is God doing for you what you don't deserve. God doing something on your behalf when you deserve something exactly the opposite. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we as sinners had the pronouncement of death upon us, God offered us life. That's grace. That's what grace is. That's how God reacts to us when trouble comes. He provides to us resources that we don't deserve, but He gives them to us as a way of offering to us hope. If, you've, if you're a big sports fan and you've got a favorite team, uh, and your team all of a sudden toward the end of the game is trailing. Now, some of those fair weather fans may say, well, that's it, it's over. Uh, those, those loyal diehard fans will sit there and look at the clock and see it's two minutes left or there's an inning left and, and they will say there's still hope. <laughs> That's just a different way of looking at the same circumstance, isn't it? When you're in trouble, you can either have hope that you're going to get beyond your current situation or you give up and you say there's no hope. You never come to a place in your life where there's no hope when God's involved. God always has a way of injecting you with hope at a time when you desperately need a word of hope. And His grace is one of the ways in which He does that. Peace. We often define peace as the absence of conflict. If we're talking about political environments... And, and between countries and, and they're about to, to go to war with one another, you find other countries trying to run in and get them to sign some kind of peace treaty because peace is the absence of conflict. No, it's not. If that's the definition of peace, Jesus never had any because everywhere Jesus turned in his life, he was facing conflict. There were accusers trying to frame him and position him in certain spots where, where his answer would give them reason to go to the authorities and insist upon his death. That was happening on a daily basis through the life and ministry of Jesus. But Jesus, I mean, he's the epitome of peace. He comes to the garden and starts praying and his prayer is so intense. The Bible says it were as if sweat drops of blood were falling from his forehead. That's the intensity with which he was praying. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. He had peace. Uh, when he stood before Pilate, we looked at that two weeks ago. 
And the accusations were leveled against him, and he knew they were false. Did he try to defend himself? The Bible says he didn't open his mouth. He just stood there. He knew the charges were wrong, but he was at peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the realization of God's presence in the midst of conflict. That's what peace is. And and John explains that for us because he wants us to understand where this grace and peace come from. And he starts by saying "Grace grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now who is he talking about here? He's talking about the Father. He's talking about God. Notice the sequence. You and I, if we were saying this, if we were speaking to each other, we would not use this this particular uh, arrangement of words. We wouldn't talk about who is and was and is to come. We We would start with the past and come to the present and move to the future. We'd say the one who was and is and is to come. That's not what John said. John said the one who is. The one who is takes priority over the one who was and is to come. Because there's significance to that. Where does it come from? Go back to Moses in the Old Testament when Moses stood before the burning bush. And Moses was was being told by God, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. And Moses turns to God and says, okay, if I go and say that to Pharaoh and he asks, Who sent you? What am I going to say? Because I don't even know your name. (laughs) And God said to Moses, what appears to be one of the strangest names anybody could give themselves. You tell Pharaoh, I am that I am has sent me. I've been in school most of my life, uh, either the school of life or in education process and different languages that I've been involved in through the years. Uh, English, I didn't fare too well with that one. Uh, Spanish, I took that for one semester in high school and I mean I know gracias and hola, I mean that's about the extent of my memory, that's a long time ago. Hebrew, (laughs) I had one semester in seminary and got out of that as quick as I could because I I, I don't like all those symbols that I can't recognize, and I don't like reading from right to left on the page, so I got out of Hebrew as quickly as I could. And, and Greek was the other one. I spent more time in it than I did in Hebrew. But the, the bottom line is there's a, there's a common ground between all those languages that you study. It doesn't matter. In order to understand a foreign language, you have to be able to conjugate verbs. And there was a single verb that we had to conjugate through every language that I've taken through my years of of training, and that is the verb to be. And the first person singular of the verb to be is I am. So what God is saying to Moses, you tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. What I really mean by that is the God who is always present with us sent me. That's why John says in his description here from the one who is and was and is to come. John was not questioning the eternity of God in the direction of the past. God has always been. There never was a time when God was not. 
He existed before the creation of the world. God does not have a beginning. And God does not have an ending. There will never come a time in the future where God is not. But the critical thing from Scripture standpoint is this I am situation. It's, it's the fact that God is always present with us. So when, when He offers grace and peace, He can do it because He's always present with us. Jesus would say to His disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, I will always be with you. The Holy Spirit, when He takes up residence at Pentecost in the hearts of believers, the promise to them was, Jesus would say, I would never leave you comfortless, but I'll send the paraclete, the one called alongside for the purpose of help to stand alongside you. You see, this this whole argument is based on the fact that we have hope as believers because God is always present with us. And that's how He brings grace and peace to us. That's the critical argument that John's making here. Then he talks about the seven spirits. And if you look at the word seven and deal with numerology through the book of Revelation, seven has to do with divine perfection. So when he talks about the the seven spirits, he's talking about the perfect spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit provides us grace and peace because he also is and was and is to come. And, And then he talks about Jesus Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, prince of the kings of the earth. He loved us and washed away our sins with his own blood. What John is saying here is when you're in trouble as a believer, you have the promise from God himself that he will never, ever leave you. He'll never desert you in your time of need. He will always be there for you. He will always be running to your side offering help and hope, grace and peace in the midst of your challenges, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your trouble. So if you're in trouble this morning, you have hope because God's Word will give it to you over and over and over again. You have peace because the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are all standing with you in the midst of your your difficulty. They're they're standing with you in the midst of your trouble. They're not going to let anything happen to you that catches them by surprise. But you also have heaven. There is a point in verse 7 where Jesus says, Through John, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, here it is again, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm not going to get into all this end of time discussion. You know, you, you get arguments about that. You got... People on TV, you know, who have their charts worked out and everything has to work according to their charts and this is going to happen and this country is going to become the beast and that'll be the mark of the beast and you got all this and you, you get into premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism and dispensational premillennialism and I mean you can give yourself a headache trying to think through all that. Jesus had a quite different answer, though, didn't he, when it came to the second coming? 
when pressed about that, when, when, when the disciples asked him, well, when are you coming in your kingdom? You know what the answer of Jesus was? I don't know. <laughs> it's not important. What's important is that, is that you live today as if today were the day. That the coming of Jesus does not catch you by surprise. God is not going to ask you in judgment whether you're a pre-prost or tribulation Christian. It's, those are all terms that people have put together to kind of give some clarity to, to the discussion. I don't, I don't know how clear it is as a result of their attempt to bring clarity, but, but I mean, the, the word is Jesus through John says he's coming. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even the ones who were bringing the the persecution on the churches of Asia Minor would see him. Even the Jews who denied him as Messiah would see him. And those who are believers would see him. So, so first of all, he just simply says this coming is visible. When Jesus returns, you'll know it. There won't be a question in your mind about what's happening. When the trump of God sounds and the Lord descends from heaven and and, and there's that meeting in the, in the air. I mean, it, it, there's not going to be any doubt about that from, from the standpoint of, of Scripture. That, that visible coming of Jesus is good for believers and it's bad for non-believers. Because that means at that moment it's too late for you to do anything about relationship with God. It's too late for you to repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. It's too late for you to do anything about all those promises you made to God throughout your life. It's not gonna, you're not going to have time for that. It's going to be over at that point. It's judgment day then. And, and that's, the, that's the promise of God's Word. So, so John says, as, as Jesus spoke to him through the Spirit, he said, I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I was here before anything existed, and I'll be here after everything is over. I'm, I'm, I'm Alpha and Omega. I am the one who is and was and is to come. I am the God who is always present. <clears throat> What's the worst thing that could have happened to the Christians of Asia Minor? Romans could have put them to death. Is that the worst thing? Because what John is saying to these people is if that happens you're immediately going to find yourself in the eternal presence of Jesus. So how's that all bad? <laughs> sure, you're going to suffer. Sure, there's going to be trouble in your life, because life is short and full of trouble. But let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Let, let, let there be an understanding in your life that the one who is and was and is to come is standing right by you this morning in the midst of your trouble. And He can bring grace and peace. He can bring hope. He can bring happiness. He can bring the promise of heaven. He can do that right in the midst of your trouble. So where are you today? You in trouble? How are you dealing with your trouble? You trying to handle it by yourself? You trying to fix your situation by yourself? You're trying to run to anybody who will listen and they, you can tell them your story and they can give you advice on what to do. 
Now, John said, if you're in trouble, like these churches in Asia Minor were in trouble, the first place you turn is to the Word of God. And then you let your relationship with God bring grace and peace and promise to you about your future. So in the midst of trouble as a believer, you can be marked by happiness, hope, and heaven. All right there in the opening verses of the book of Revelation and for the rest of the book, John's going to be talking to these first century Christians about how they can be happy, how they can be filled with hope, how they can have the promise of heaven even in the midst of trouble. I don't know of a better word for you today than that. If you're in trouble, you're not alone. Look around you. Everybody in this room has either had trouble or they have trouble. (laughs) We're all in this together. And remember, God has not turned His back on you. God has not left you alone to somehow overcome your trouble. But He has promised through His Word, to be present with you, to help you, to offer you hope, to help you remember the promise of heaven, and to be happy even when your world is turned upside down. Because happiness isn't built on your circumstances. It's built on a personal, life-changing relationship with Jesus. So you may be in the worship center today, you may be watching online, uh, but, but there, there comes a point where you've got to say, what does this mean to me? Well, what it means to you is, you're going to have trouble, or you may be having trouble right now. And you can either deal with that trouble by yourself, with your own resources, with your own understanding, with your own intellect, or you can turn it over to God and let Him help you deal with it. So if you're a non-believer, if you're one who's never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, that's the starting point in being able to understand the happiness, hope, and heaven that we've talked about this morning. It's having a life-changing relationship with Christ. Maybe as a Christian, you've drifted from God, like the church at Ephesus did, where Jesus looked at that church and said, you've left your first love. Things aren't the way they used to be in terms of my relationship with you. You've walked away from me. Maybe it's time to come back. This last year has been a tough one with COVID. We're finding that a lot of people who were in church regularly pre-COVID are hesitant to come back post-COVID because they've been out a whole year and there's just something about that routine and habit in life of being in God's house every Sunday that makes it easy when you're out for a while just to say, well, that really is not important. But it is important. The assembling with fellow believers on Sunday and Wednesday and whenever else you can get together is absolutely vital to your life. It's critical. Your spiritual health depends on relationships that you have with other Christians so you can share one another's burdens and pray for one another. It's absolutely critical. So maybe as a Christian today, there's a need to come back to God and renew your commitment to Him. Maybe to unite with this fellowship by promise of letter, statement of your faith. Maybe to surrender to God's call to vocational ministry in your life. Whatever God would lay on your heart, you do it. Right now we're going to have a chance for you to respond. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege of worship together. Thank you for this church here at Elkdale.
We pray your blessing on this congregation. And we pray your blessing on everyone who's listening to this message this morning. We're all going to have trouble. We all have trouble. But things are not hopeless. We're not helpless. Because as believers, you've brought happiness, you've brought hope, you've brought heaven all to the table to help us understand we're not alone. And we'll never be alone as long as we trust you with our future. So help us do that this morning as we come to our invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.